It's a symbiotic relationship with the natural world. And if we look after it, it nurtures us. Inaction is action. Even the non-conscious capitalist is waking up. Why? Welcome to the second renaissance, where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness the winds of change. I'm Anders Sulman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father, and your host for The Second Renaissance. Today, we're speaking with Simon Mannering, the author of Lead With We. Simon is an award-winning author and the founder of We First, a strategic consultancy driving growth and impact for purpose-driven brands like Tom's Shoes, Timberland, and the United Nations Foundation. He's on the steering committee of Sustainable Brands, the Forbes Business Council, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Prior to We First, Simon was an award-winning writer and creative director at top creative agencies, including Wyden and Kennedy, Ogilvy, and Saatchi and Saatchi, before having a personal awakening and elevating into conscious capitalism. In today's episode, we decode how purpose-led businesses are transforming the nature of business, why Wall Street is waking up to ESG investing, what Gita Thunberg can teach us about creating a brand movement, B Corps, and why the pandemic accelerated the conscious consumerism wave. Thanks for joining us on the show, Simon Mannering. Thank you, Anders. Great to be here. Nice to have you here, beaming in uh, from the past, as I should say, in, in Los Angeles. We're talking to you from, from Sydney, Australia today, which, which is, of course, your original home, right? It is. I grew up in Sydney and uh, spent my whole life there until I was about 26. And I've been in LA now for over 20 years, which is crazy. You know, what I love, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Swedish and I, you know, I came to Australia, you know, um, when I was 16, but, you know, I've been living my life sort of between the two and, you know, part, parts of it over in the US as well. Um, I have this sort of weirded, blended, you know, eccentric Swedish-Australian accent now, but I, I think you've still got your Aussie, Aussie, Aussie accent pretty much intact even after all those years. Here's the great thing. You can always rely on your Aussie mates that when you come home, if you've got any sort of funny accent or whatever, they'll knock some sense into you. They'll be like, what's up with that? Although I have yeah. to say, prior to the pandemic, I was in London for, London for work and I got in an Uber and the driver said, oh, you're American. And I was like, oh no, what's happened? That accent's gone or something. So thank you for reassuring me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, I get South uh, South African a lot, which I I don't know if that's what, where, where Swedes and Australian accents blend and meet, but who knows. Mate, uh, great to have you on, on the show, which is, of course, about uh, human creativity in a technology-enabled world. Um, we're very much focusing this season on, on sustainability and, and, and purpose-led innovation, which I know is, is totally your wheelhouse. I, I'm curious, you know, you know you're, you're, you're a brilliant entrepreneur, you're a New York Times bestseller. You know, when, when did you have your sort of eureka moment? What was the thing that sort of went, you know, yes, you know, I'm a, I'm a capitalist, I'm an entrepreneur, to then also being, you know, I'm a, I'm a conscious capitalist, I'm a purpose-led entrepreneur. What was the, what was the thing that shifted? Or ha have you always had this at the core of your being? 
You know, it's a great question. And no, it wasn't always at the core of my being. I was an ad guy in Australia, London, and the US beforehand. And I was lucky enough to work on brands like Nike at their ad agency, Wyden and Kennedy, and then was worldwide creative director on Motorola and was launching the, the Razor phone. And I just had a normal, you know, career. But then after a while, I found myself unhappy. I was walking around my backyard here in LA and I had a young family. My wife's from Sydney as well. And I was unhappy. And you know, as a young dad, you don't know how to communicate that to your family members. Your job is to be, you know, provide and to be good and make sure everyone's okay. But I was unhappy privately. And then, you know, on a personal note, my dad had been sick for a long time. And I walked into the kitchen one morning in LA and there was five messages on the answering machine. And they were from my mum, my mum more upset, a third one was from my sister yelling down the phone because they were trying to wake me because they're calling from Sydney to LA. A fourth one was my mom and then the last message from my mom, which was, Simon, dad died, call us when you wake up. And I hadn't seen dad for five years. And, you know, those words that she said, call us when you wake up, they took on a profundity for me, like importance that I didn't even think she intended because I hadn't seen him. I'd been a self-important ad guy and I was, I was disillusioned with my work. And that really started me questioning what I was doing because I was professionally destabilized and then emotionally unsure about what's next and, and, and sort of thrown to the wind with my dad's passing. And for the first time in my life, Anders, I got out of my own way. You know how so often in life you write a list and you go rational and you retreat to your brain to try and make sense of what's going on? I was just such a mess that I just stopped. I was like, I can't even think straight anymore. I don't even know what the answers are and I'm not going to try and work it out. Um, and so I went away and a couple of weeks later, I happened to read the speech that Bill Gates gave at the World Economic Forum, his creative capitalism speech. The global economic meltdown had just happened. Everyone was affected around the world. And in this speech, he said, you know, the private sector needs to play a bigger role in social change. Government and philanthropy can't fix it on their own. And I took that to heart. And I worked on sort of big campaigns for Nike, like the Olympics and World Cup, and done big things for Motorola. And you sort of go, wait a second, if we use this power of storytelling to actually help brands do good and make business more responsible, what could that be like? And so I spent three years writing a book called We First that was, you know, how brands and consumers use social media to build a better world. And this was just when Arab Spring was happening. Facebook had started. Twitter was barely started. And I saw great promise in that. So the turn came not through planning, not because of who I was, but because life came along and just slapped me sideways and just said, stop it. Just be still for a moment and let something else show up. And that's how I see it now. Yeah, amazing. I, I mean, I, I am really... A saddened to hear that the, the story about your father's passing and and and, and certainly you know the, the, those wires crossing time zones you know global global life um for you to have that you know for, for you to have that wake up and then you know i've heard so many stories you know that are not the same as yours but but that sort of quality during you know during the pandemic of of families you know distanced by you know border shutdowns and lockdowns and not being able to see their loved ones on, on, on their deathbeds today. Do, do you think the, you know, do you think the pandemic has had, you know, a, a similar effect either on sort of society as a whole or, or, or individuals who are starting to take stock in their lives in a similar fashion? I think they have. I mean, I think, A, 
when you have the connection, that connective tissue between you and the others you love and you care about taken away, you're so mindful of its absence. You feel it every day. And then also, I think we've all discovered how restorative the natural world can be because we've all been so scared, so anxious for our health, our well-being, our futures, our jobs. And I think most of us have sort of kind of taken solace in nature and just gone out there. For me, it's the ocean. I grew up in the water in Sydney. I love the water. That's my happy place. And I'd have to get in the water to keep myself sane as we've all gone through this. As you may recall, in 2020 in the US, there was a lot of political turmoil. We had the Black Lives Matter protests. We had COVID. We had, you know, military folks on the street here. We had lootings and burnings of stores going on everywhere. Everyone is hunkered down with COVID and so on. It was very, very oppressive and the country was very, very divided. And then to your point about COVID, you know, it's been an interesting time. We sent our daughters to Australia back home because you were relatively free of it back last November. We thought they'd be gone for a couple of months. We'd see them at Christmas. We're all good. Here we are. And they only actually returned uh, two weeks ago. So we hadn't seen our, I hadn't seen my daughters for 11 months. But all I'd say also is my wife went and saw them briefly at one point because her mother got very, very, very sick. And because of COVID, she was in quarantine when her mother was in her sort of last couple of days. And she got one hour with her mother and then had to go back to the quarantine hotel and her mother passed. And then she had to watch the funeral from the car because she wasn't allowed to participate in the funeral, even though she was double vaccinated and done all the RPA tests. So it was very real and present in our family. And all I would say is we all came away, my daughters, my wife and I going, you know, this is the important stuff. How close we are as a family, how much time we spend together is more important than ever. And I think we've all been made very aware of how transient life is. Like it comes and goes, it disappears. And there's no logic to it now in the COVID world. So let's, let's be kind to the ones we love and let's, let, let's really think about what we're doing with our time. So I, I do think it's changed us a lot. And it's been a very kind of time, a strong time of reflection for my family, for sure. Yeah, do you think people have just been sort of tuned into their, you know, their and, you know, their, their, their family's mortality to, to a different degree than maybe we were pre, pre-pandemic? I think so. I think we're all that much more aware of our mortality and how fragile life is. And the flip side, the positive side is what a gift life is. You know, to see friends, to be together, to have a party, to graduate. And then I think we've also very much appreciated nature in the sense that we all saw when the airlines stopped, when people weren't at work, blue skies over Los Angeles. I was like, there's mountains. I've been here for 20 years. There's mountains over there. You know, um, and, and I think... It's not that we're learning something new, Anders. I think we're just remembering what we forgot, which is the most important stuff is our heart-led connection to each other and our codependence, our symbiotic relationship with the natural world. And if we look after it, it nurtures us. And I think these are really powerful lessons to be taken away from it. Yeah. I'm, I'm reading a book uh, at the moment called A Well-Gardened Mind, which, uh, which is a beautiful book. And... Um, you know, it, it talks about our love for nature, but also how restorative nature is and how important gardening has been through, through the ages in terms of, you know, giving people hope and almost becoming like a bit of a metaphor, you know, whether it's, you know, plucking the weeds out of your, you know, veggie patch or whether it's doing the composting and seeing how, you know, your, your, your food waste, you know, is now, you know, turning into soil and, and a beautiful fertilizer for something new that grows. It, it is that sort of beautiful circularity, which I know is, you know, at the, at the core of, of the sustainability movement of the circular economy. Um, 
Do you think, you know, beyond, beyond that sort of being in tune with, with nature, do you, do you think, you know, even, even the not so conscious capitalist, maybe the, the, the numbers driven capitalist wall street, do you think they're waking up to, to seeing that, you know, the, the sustainable is, is the only way forward in, um, you know, with a focus that what I would argue would be 2030 as opposed to 2050 procrastination. Yeah, I think it needs those timelines we're working against are shrinking towards us. And, and here's what I see coming, and then I'll answer your question. You know, luckily in the work that we do, where we work with companies large and small, and we first to help them define and integrate and activate their purpose, you see what's happening inside the C-suite of all these different industries. And there's a growing awareness that out in the future, these issues, climate crisis, ocean acidification, loss of biodiversity, pollution in the ocean, they're all compounding out in the future and they're hurtling back towards us in the present. And that means that this luxury of choice we have as to how far or how fast we change is soon going to be ripped out of our hands because consumers, employees, investors are either going to look at you as part of the problem or part of the solution. And so, yes, even the non-conscious capitalist is waking up. Why? It's affecting their supply chain all the extreme weather and so on. They're not getting the water or they're not getting the sustainable agriculture to grow the cotton, to make the t-shirt, to sell in a store. They're not able to attract the employees they want and to get the most out of them and to get them to stay. They're not able to build the reputation so that in a growing number of conscious consumers, especially younger demographics, won't buy from them because they see them as part of the problem. And here's the other issue. If you try and play both sides of the fence, you're going to get stuck because people think, you know, you're just disingenuous and you're going to lose people on either side of an issue. But if you also leave an information vacuum and you don't talk about what you stand for and you don't show up, people either assume you don't care, you don't care about the same things, or they go to a competitor who's more intentional about sharing that story. And so business is waking up and you see this huge flight of capital of money towards ESG funds. And some of that's genuine, some of it's just relabeling of funds, but even the non-conscious capitalist sees the marketplace opportunity in mitigating risk, de-risking your company, and also being relevant to the future. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like there's a real sort of, you know, zeitgeist shift uh, and awakening happening at the moment. Some people talk about, you know, spiral dynamics and moving from sort of, you know, an egocentric version of, of the world to a much more collective view of the world, uh, which of course, you know, sort of ties back to, to your, you know, first book, which is of, of course around that sort of shift from me to we, right? Um, you're just about to launch a, a new book now around um, we leading. So the, again, the collective, you know, what, what's changed between book number one and book number two of, of the last last decade in terms of just your awareness or even what you see see collectively? Yeah, you know, you, you talk about your background and how blended and mixed is, it is. And my wife, her parents are Egyptian. She was born in Egypt. My mother was born in Hungary. We've been lived, lived in lots of places around the world. And, you know, after a while, that gives you a strong sense of the human family that's out there. And I think that creates an awareness or an empathy for what's going on in broader terms. And so the first book, We First, was really a response to the fact that, well, what's wrong with this picture? What is wrong with business that a few people at the top and maybe in the investment banking world and elsewhere make a vastly disproportionate amount of money, but it's at the expense of everybody else losing their homes, their health care, their hopes, and Greece, Iceland, Gulf states that went all around the world. 
And really, it's not rocket science. I just sat there as a regular sort of Aussie ad guy just going, what's wrong with this picture? And I went, it seems like there's this really compulsive me-first mentality out there where I'm going to take care of myself at the expense of everybody else. Now, that said, human beings have a healthy self-interest. You've got to look after yourself. I'm talking about selfishness, where you'd make disproportionate sort of prosperity at the expense of others. So the first book was really shifting from that center of me first to what in my mind was the opposite, which is a we first, which is how do we work together and use these newly emerging tools like Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on to create meaningful dialogues between brands and consumers, between institutions and citizens to share what we care about and, doing a better, and do a better job than we were before the global economic meltdown. That's what the first book was about. It was about technology in the context of business as usual. Could social technologies make us do more good? Now, here we are, cut to 10 years later and a lot of entrepreneurial ups and downs and all the madness and raising a family and ah, and things are much worse. I think a lot of the social platforms, one might say understandably, but I, I would question that, have really sort of defaulted to looking to the advertising dollar. And, you know, it's polarized people. There's been privacy issues and all of the things that are explored in films like The Social Dilemma and others. As a result, a lot of that opportunity to move things in a meaningful direction has been lost. And things like the climate crisis, carbon emissions, plastic in the oceans, and so on and so on have got worse. But it's, it's a very different day today. We are now facing an existential crisis. I wrote the first book because I, like so many others, saw it coming. The new book is about a wholesale reimagining of business, a re-engineering of business where we put, uh, through the lens of collaborative leadership, where we reimagine how we work and live together in new ways to restore and protect the living and social systems on which all of our lives depend. Why? Look at your phone. Look at the news. Look at what's going on on a daily basis, whether it's grease on fire, whether it's fires in Australia, whether it's fires here in California, whether it's floods in Europe. This is all coming like a freight train towards us. And in the, it's in the next 10 years. It's your lifetime. It's your new family's lifetime. It's my daughter's lifetime. And we can't sit on the sidelines. And so the new book, Lead With We, is about how do we practice business in a way where we restore the collective, the natural systems and the social systems which allow us all to thrive. And that sounds simple. We're all part of one human family. We're all connected to the same planet. But if that's the priority, what does that mean for a CEO? What does it mean for your company culture? What does it mean for your products and innovation? What does it mean for your marketing communications? What does it mean for your industry, cross-sector collaboration? And how do we pull that all the way through? Why? So we can accelerate and scale our solutions to these issues, like bringing carbon out of the atmosphere back into the ground so that we can minimize the temperature rise, so that we don't lose all the biodiversity around the world, so that we don't have plastic. I mean, we are all consuming a credit card's worth of plastic on a weekly basis through what we eat and drink. So that, you know, so we actually have a higher quality of life, not just for us, but for the future. So the first book was Social Technologies to Improve Business as Usual. 10 years on, we're in much, much worse shape, and this is how we lead together to solve these issues at scale. <clears throat> There's been a um, you know a very much a focus, and I remember this when we when we shared stage in a, in a hybrid world for the Australian Food and, and, and Grocery Council um, their summit in 2021 uh, in May. This, this, this focus on on movements in your work, and 
you know, whether it's been from a, you know, a marketing and branding perspective, but now it feels even more poignant, right? It feels like there is this existential crisis. I mean, there's even a new, new psychological studies that say that people actually, and particularly kids, are having pre-traumatic stress disorder about, you know, the, the climate and the environment. And there's even, um, you know, women in, in, in their most fer fertile years now going on birth strikes because they realize what the carbon emissions of, of a new child in the world is. Um, you know, in, in that sort of movement of, you know, create a movement for, for, for your brand 10 years ago. I mean, I know also, of course, that there was this hope around the Arab Spring and change and all the rest. Um, it seems like now this sort of collective movement is a about, you know, tapping into the into our why. Um, the Okinawans would call it the ikigai or life's purpose, the French raison d'etre. Um, you know, what's your sort of, you know, reason for, for being here? And, you know, how, how do you think about, you know, individuals and, and, and brands tapping into not just their why, but also leading these movements that are even more crucial now? Because without them, we're, you know, we're stuffed. Yeah, it's a good question. We specialize in my company in helping brands build movements. So this is based on doing, doing it for real, you know, with companies. We're lucky enough, we work with, you know, Tom's and Timberland and Sony Pictures and other companies out there. So this is a practitioner's response. The first thing is we've got to realize that we're all complicit. Inaction is action. It's a choice. And that the connectivity between your individual actions, like if you throw out a piece of plastic in the street, or I buy from a company that's putting chemicals in the, in the river, all of those individual actions aggregate to the situation we're in now. And my big hope is that we can wake up to our shared responsibility to actually use that connectivity to our advantage rather than our disadvantage. And this is one of my problems with this idea of stakeholder capitalism. A lot of people now talk about the shift from shareholder to stakeholder capitalism, where they talk about everyone is a stakeholder in the future, so everyone should share in the rewards. I believe we need to share in the responsibilities as well. And so that means to answer your question on an individual level, the choices I make, where I work, what car I drive, what products I buy, where I invest my money, what pension fund I'm in and where that pension fund invests its money are all different levers of change for each one of us individually. And I think we're entering an age of agency where the role of brands is to activate the agency inside every stakeholder from the supplier to the employee to the consumer and allow them to make a difference in small and big ways on a daily basis. And then when I think about business more broadly, you know, there's a certain architecture to building a, a movement through a brand. And I can go into that if you like. But the way I see the role of business now is we need to have collectivized purpose. It's not just Tom's purpose, Timberland's purpose. It's there's a collectivized purpose to business, which is, in my language, to lead with we, which is to serve the whole so the parts can thrive. And then within that, there's that actually a spiral that is, you know, the, the center of my new book, which is I call the virtuous spiral of collectivized purpose. And what it does is it starts at the bottom with the me, the, the choices that I can make. And then the leaders, the leaders in a company, then it's culture, then it's community with its consumers out there, then to society at large, and then above and beyond that transcendent business where everything's working together to restore that harmony with the natural world. And so I see business now as a movement of movements. There's the collectivized purpose of business, 
which is really to restore this harmony with the natural world so that we can all live and thrive and go to the beach and have our holidays and, and not live in fear of whatever headline we see the next day. But then each individual company, your company, my company, big or small, a founder, a CEO of a Fortune 100 company, every single one of us needs to bring that larger purpose of business to life in its own unique way that's meaningful and authentic to it. So the short answer is I see the agency of the individual of the individual is critical as a starting point, but then business needs to become a movement of movements through this idea of collectivized purpose. Yeah. So I know you guys are a B Corp, um, uh, and which is of course one of those potential movements within movements. Um, you know, helps you select which partners and which suppliers you want to work with, and you know, helps helps investors. Um, I guess. In a sense, hack the um, you know the the you know the long uh, way of finding the right you know investment partners, for example, or the rest, right startups to invest in, etc. Because you're looking at values alignment. Um, can you just describe your your journey with B Lab and and becoming a, a B Corp? And do you think that that's the the movement that we need to to kind of tap into, or what kind of value do you see for for for, for brands in in thinking about their purpose and also then, you know, taking the, the necessary steps on that transformation. Well, I think everyone listening wants to do something to make things better. It's just inherent in our human nature. None of us like the, the future that we're all facing. And if you're listening, one of the ways that you can really institutionalize your commitment to do good is to become a B Corp. There are other ways as well. It could be your ESG metrics, your environmental, social and governance metrics you know, which hold you accountable for what difference you're making. It could be committing towards some, some of the sustainable development goals, which are the 17 goals that 200 countries around the world agreed on in 20, 2015 as the most important challenges to humanity. But being a B Corp means that you've done a, an impact assessment report. And that really gives you a score where you've got to get above 80 and they look at all the different things that your company does, from its supply chain to how you treat your employees to your carbon footprint to how you go to market to your volunteering and contribution. And once you become a B Corp, you can actually have that institutionalized into the articles of incorporation of your company. So it's actually built into the foundation of your company. And then every two years, you've got to renew that. You've got to re-up your accountability for getting to that score and ideally increasing that score over time. So yes, it is a powerful way to do it, but it's not about just the B Corp brand and tick the box and therefore you know, you're a B Corp. It's, re it's really about making sure that you're authentically committed to showing up in the world in a certain way. And one of the ways you show that is being a B Corp. So it's not about purpose washing, cause washing, green washing by just ticking the box and then you just put pens down and you think you're done. But rather it's about saying, hey, this is just one way that we show that we've got a long-term sustained commitment to doing good. Do you, do you find, have you found in your own e experience that it's become, you know, just in terms of how you're building your business, that it's become not just a tick, but it's become an active sort of, you know, search term or people kind of go, yes, this actually makes the decision to engage with We First easier. I think it does. There is a strong B Corp community of thousands of companies now and some very large companies out there like Athleta and, Danone in North America and, and others. So it's gaining momentum because companies want to be defensible in public. They want to de-risk their reputation and so on. And being a B Corp is one of the most powerful ways to show that they're actually authentically committed. It's, it's got some rigor to it, some accountability. Hmm. 
some companies, you know, if you're a brand out there and you want to look and work with a partner who can help them become a movement or something, if they see a B Corp on our website and we're a B Corp best for the world, which means we're one of the top schools in our category and so on, I think that does give them some sense of comfort. I think it does sort of say, hey, we care. We're, it's not that we're trying to tell you how great we are. And it shows that we're holding ourselves accountable for how we want to show up in the world. So I do think it's important. So if you're listening and you're a, you're a solopreneur just starting a company, or if you're a legacy brand that's been around for 30 or 40 years, you can look at and go to you know, the, the B-Lab site and just see how you become a B Corp. And then you know, look at the rigor of the process by which they assess if you qualify. And then there's certain fees to pay and so on. But it's a really, really good way of showing others that you're walking your talk and becoming part of a community where, yeah, I, I agree with you, Anders. I think B Corps do want to work with B Corps, yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, the other thing here too is, you know, there's, you know, we're, we're both on entrepreneurs and, you know, I, w- I would dare say, you know, conscious capitalists, but nonetheless, you know, there's still, a, at least for me, I, I can't speak for you, but, you know, there's still a, a profit motive, right? I think I think business without some level of profit is, is also unsustainable. Um, you know, I've, I've seen it in my, in my own family, for example, where, you know, my mum ran a, uh, a family business in Stockholm, Sweden, where, you know, yeah, she was focusing on, on people and planet, but she forgot about the profit. I'd be guilty of that. Early in the day, I would be like, you know, doing so much pro bono work because that's, you know, your heart led and so on. And then you realize the business can't survive. But I think there's a false separation going on here. I mean, I've been working exclusively in the purpose space for 10 years. And it's been a dramatic change in the marketplace all around the world in terms of the appetite for it. The mistake people make is they go, well, when do I talk about my product and when do I talk about my purpose? But they're two sides of the same coin. The market drivers are such today that when you show up in a way where you're doing less harm and more good, more people want to buy from you, more people want to work for you, investors want to invest in you. And so that drives your profit. And there's a big distinction in my book between what a lot of people talk about, which is called the virtuous cycle, which is you do well by doing good. What I lay out in my book, as I mentioned, is the virtuous spiral of collectivized purpose. Why is that distinction important? As somebody who lives and breathes purpose every day and wants to help companies really grow and succeed and solve for issues, there's a level of self-limitation to the virtuous cycle where it's sort of like, I'm going to confine my doing good to my box of influence, my company, my employees, my industry, my nonprofit partner. But what's missing is the synergies between companies in your industry, between industries, across sectors, that same connectivity I was talking about before. So we're kind of only firing on half the cylinders. So all of that is to say that if you really do want to drive growth for your company, to drive profit, Lean into your purpose because the market drivers are there to support it, but also expand your sort of lens or aperture of how you look at it and go, wow, how can I collaborate with competitors, you know, pre-going to market? How can I work cross-sector? How can I leverage partnerships to scale my impact so that the market forces can reward me even more? And I think, you know, we, we, we oftentimes sort of, underestimate how much influence we, we we actually might have, whether it is voting with your with your wallet or even even in just in terms of, you know, your preferred vendors, right? Um, we were talking to a client yesterday and they're, they're you know, they're, they're recognized as one of the most innovative companies in the world. And despite the fact that they've suffered some supply chain shortages, like so many other companies over the last 18 months, they're very much on a path at the moment where they're 
you know, starting to dictate terms that you can only do work as a supplier with this organization, one of the most recognized in the world, if you meet very, very strict ESG factors or criteria. Are you, are you seeing that across, across the board in, in the companies you're, you're working with that um, people that have the buying power are now really starting to, to green or to, to make the whole supply chain more, more ethical and tapping into that collectiveness? I, th- I am, and I'll tell you why. And for those listening, this is going to impact your business more and more with every passing month moving forward. Because as I said, these challenges are, are rising before our eyes. Follow the money. Look at the money. Where is the money going? I think there's a lot of healthy cynicism and skepticism about do good business. But at the end of the day, the money is not going to go towards companies that are going to increasingly expose themselves to risk, whether it's through how they make their products, how they take them to market, how they treat their people. Look at the Me Too movement everywhere, you know, how they market themselves. Instead, in the context of climate and all the other issues I touched on, more and more companies are now saying, hey, we've got to de-risk ourselves. So we're going to say to our supplier, don't use those chemicals. Don't use those dyes. You've got to reduce your carbon footprint. You can't use child labor or slave labor in my tier three or tier four supplier in my apparel company. And so in order to be defensible in public, the B2C company that faces consumers is turning around to its suppliers and saying, don't be a liability for us. Get your act in order. Otherwise, we can't work with you. And then one of them does it. And then the other has to do it. And suddenly the whole industry is leveled up. Like you remember the big factory collapse in Bangladesh, where tragically so, you know, over a thousand women died and so on. The whole fashion industry changed the way it did business because of that. And now what you're also seeing at the same time, Anders, is younger companies that are, are more effective at doing good and sharing their story are stealing a quarter of a point, half a point, one point away from the big boys. And the big boys or girls are looking at it and going, okay, that's not okay. And so they're retooling what they're doing. So whether it's coming from consumer pressure and therefore changing their suppliers, or whether it's coming from startups and social enterprises that are stealing market share, companies of all sizes now are saying, it's not just us that have got our house in order, everyone that touches our business. Yeah, and, that, and that's, of course, when you know, a collective movement can happen. Um, I feel like we're starting to move more as one. I mean, if, even if you're looking at you know, Larry Fink and his you know, shareholder letters, you know, this is the, you know, the, the largest investment group in the world that's really putting ESG you know, front and center of all of their decision making, but also, of course, you know, the, the ripple effect of that throughout the world. Uh, is really heartening. Um, but also, I mean, you, you've seen consumers respond to this as well. Um, we've recently done some work on sustainability with, with the BMW group and, you know, the research um, uh, in the automotive space shows that 34% of people who drive Audis, Teslas, Volkswagen, Mercedes, BMW, would it be happy to shift brands based upon sustainability factors? And then you see research coming out that people are happy to pay a sustainability premium now for products and services that um, have sustainability weaved into the value chain, right? Um, and I, I live here in, 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 in uh, the northern beaches of Sydney, and so our offices, our studio is in, is in Avalon Beach. 
man. So it's interesting. Jealous, Anders. I'm so uh, jealous. We should be doing this live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know. I know. I should be on the beach. Um, <laughs> I'll take you for a, for an Aussie morning coffee next time you're out. Oh, man, um, I'm murderous Sydney latte right now. All milk. Yeah. 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 That's it. Um, so you know, we we have um, you know, the, you know, it's a really lovely community here, um, and and some really interesting, you know, I think partly because of the pandemic, you know, lot, lot, lots of really cool brands now realizing they can untether from the CBD or from, from Surrey Hills and the hipster communities and, you know, in, in the, in the center of Sydney and kind of move into these peripheral, you know, lifestyle zones. Uh, and at the same time, we have a few, you know, we have a few $2 stores here in the, in, in this little village that are very controversial because some people say, Hey, you know, it, during the pandemic, you know, you know, money and, and, and finance was, was something that was really tough for our family. So people said, you know, we needed a two, $2 store. Whereas I can respect that. And I also go, the things you bought, and this sounds really privileged, but the things you bought did not cost $2, did not cost $2 to the planet. It might be, you know, that that supply chain also potentially involved children, for example, uh, working in, 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 in terrible circumstances. So, you know, there is this sort of, you know, trade-off or, or this tension between, you know, the haves and the, and the have-nots, um, you know, what we, you know, are we really trying, you know, are we really paying the true cost as, as the Netflix documentary goes for, for things like fashion? Um, or do we all kind of need to wake up and, and, and has the pandemic, uh, been an accelerator of people kind of going, mm, we need, we need, we do, you know, we need to pay for the fact that supply chain can't always be super lean or that, you know, we need to actually, keep some stock in our, you know, national stockpile of PPE and that's going to cost a little bit extra. Is there an awareness that we maybe should, you know, buy better, buy less? I think there is. And I think the pandemic increased that and the supply chain issues within it exposed just how fragile the way we were doing business is and how little we factored in the larger cost to our lives. And I think your point is well taken that many items we buy each day cost us things that are far more valuable than money. They cost us what is called natural capital, which is the ability of the planet to provide all the resources we need to make those products in the first place. And the negative impact we have that is typically not factored into the cost of a product are called negative externalities whether it's pollution in the ocean or whatever else it might be. And it's been very convenient for business when factoring the price of a product to exclude those costs. But under circumstances of extreme stress, which we are already under globally with the climate crisis and so on, and then the pandemic, and then the Black Lives Matter movement and so on and so on, it almost threw into relief the disparity of wealth and the tensions and the fragility of the whole system. I think the response needs to be, and we're seeing this rising every day, increased accountability in business for the true cost of any product, factoring in those other elements. And if you actually look, there's a lot of research done showing that a lot of the companies that are regarded as profitable and the most successful would be absolutely, uh, would have no profit to show if you factored in the natural capital costs mm. of what they made. So we need to dramatically re-engineer how we think about the true cost of a product. And to your point, what we buy so that people can in good conscience know that they're being, making a responsible choice. And you're seeing it. If you look over here in the States, 
you know, a shoe company called Allbirds partnered with Adidas. And, you know, they've got a carbon calculator that allows you to kind of understand the carbon footprint of the products you buy and how you live. And uh, there's another company out of Northern Europe that I think it was uh, Finland or Sweden that just released the 2030 calculator, which allows any business or any consumer to calculate the carbon footprint of how they're living their life or what products they buy. So these are very, very powerful tools. I just think we haven't been told what's going on and we didn't have tools to give us the information as consumers and that's changing super fast. I mean, you're you know you're a branding guy at at, at heart, uh, branding guy with purpose, I should add. But um, you know th this idea of you know provenance, um, provenance marketing, uh, where things come from, you know, be it Parmigiano, Reggiano cheese, or, or, or champagne, right? The, you know, the sense of place and, and natural wonder has always been, you know, part of you know luxury branding right and then you know that came into you know the, the the kitchens and the restaurants in a in a bigger way in terms of you know from farm to table or producer to consumer and now of course we've got the blockchain across all of that so when you know de beers sells its diamonds for example you know from from mine to retail we we can track whether it's conflict free do you see this playing out you know across the board not just in in luxury which has this kind of you know sort of easy marriage in a sense, potentially with, with, with sustainability, but you see it playing out also in fast fashion and, and, and other spaces as well. I see there's three big areas where the change is most aggressive. One is the energy sector, one is textiles or footwear and apparel, and the other is food. And they also just happen to be the three biggest polluting industries in the world. And they're at the coalface of consumer engagement, fast fashion. You know, there's been a huge pushback around that and you see enormous sustainability efforts across the board. The whole clean food movement and even clean beauty and getting rid of plastics and bad chemicals out of makeup and beauty products is taking off like wildfire. And then, I mean, look at the you know, plant-based meat alternatives out there, Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods and so on, that have you know, even got into Burger King and so many other big chains around the world. So I think you know, the change is happening, happening incredibly quickly and I also think it's happening you know, faster to those which sit at the coalface of consumer engagement. And the luxury brands is interesting. I think they sometimes get away with it because they've elevated their brands for so long. It's like, we didn't even care about anything else. We just aspire to whatever idea you've manufactured. Those brand guys, I tell you. And it's the same with the entertainment industry. I'm here in LA, just down the road is Sony Studios and so on. And I think the cult of celebrity around that has almost got them, kind of given them an exemption card for a while. But even they are waking up now because people are going, well, are you greening your set? What's the carbon footprint of that? Or they're saying, I just bought this fabulous designer, whatever it is, sweater, scarf. And did I really need all this packaging? You know, at point of sale, they're like, I, do I need all of this? Just give it to me. And like, no, I don't want to be responsible for all of that. Mm. And so I do think people are waking up and I think that what we're seeing right now, just in everyone's mind's eye as you're listening, just imagine in your mind's eye, how important was this stuff five years ago? Five years ago, way pre-pandemic. You might be like, oh, we've got to do good, but we're getting there and some companies are doing it and philanthropists and billionaires or whatever. 10 years ago, didn't really hear a lot about it, heard something about the SDGs maybe, but it's almost like the oil ocean is boiling around us. We are swimming in the changes in business right now and I tell you, it's exponential. And in five years' time, if you're a startup, an entrepreneur, if you are a high-growth company or you're one of the, you know, the biggest companies in the world or Australia's biggest companies, 
the expectation on you to be accountable upstream and downstream across all stakeholders and providing solutions to the root causes within your industry that are systemic solutions that can scale, it's gonna go through the roof because the environment in which we're in will dictate the expectations of your investors, your employees, and your consumers. So if you wanna know how to get ahead in your business today, if you're a CEO or a founder, you really gotta look, don't look, on the, look at the past, don't build on the past. The past, has, the past has less to do with the future than ever. Instead, you've got to reverse engineer out of the future. Look at what the world is going to be like in five or 10 years. Soberly, clear-eyed, take a stiff drink because it's probably a little bit scary and then reverse engineer out of the expectations that are going to be thrust on you. And when you do that, the marketplace will rise to meet you and those market forces will carry you forward. So reverse engineer out of the future. Don't build on the past. I, I mean, I love that thought experiment, right? Uh, you know, it's always great, you know, always better to do a pre-mortem than a, than a, than a post-mortem because we yeah, still have the ability to, to... be the one who's on the table, on the slab. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I mean, it, it, is, it is fascinating and sometimes daunting to just imagine the consequences of us not getting this right in the next nine years. And, you know, you, you've got kids, mine are a little bit younger. Um, you know, I do think just, you know, in the last four years of, you know, Lucian was born in 2017, which kind of takes us back that, that time scale you just spoke about. And, um, you know, I think nine years into his future and just, you know, you know, reading books like the Lorax to him, you know, um, of, you know, Dr. Seuss being worried about the, the planet 50 years ago, and how so little has shifted, but then all, now all of a sudden, it actually seems like we're at this intersection of, you know, consciousness, but also of technologies that actually make the solutions viable and plausible. And then a huge awakening at the same time in, in these industries, including agriculture, which has been a huge emitter um, of, uh, of carbon emissions. Now, you know, farmers moving back to, to traditional, you know, regenerative, restorative farming methods. I mean, do, what are the sort of, you know, easy or even, you know, baseline shifts that we should be making as either families or as, as entrepreneurs, as companies that are, you know, just, you know, the ticket, ticket of admission to, to the future? What do, what do you think are some easy, easy wins? And then we can talk about the high hanging fruit as well. Yeah, and I'll... I'll... I will give you some concrete steps that you can take, but I want to say something very clearly. I'm very aware of these challenges like you are with your family. My two daughters, they're 19 and 22. They just came back from Sydney and they told me the other day that they're not sure if they're having kids because they don't want to bring a kid into this world. And that guts me as a potential granddad with a lot of boring old stories to tell. That's what I've been doing. I've been waiting to tell those stories, right? But it's not all doom and gloom. This is the most exciting unlock for humanity and by extension business that since the industrial revolution, because we can reimagine and re-engineer everything we're doing, not by learning something new, but remembering what we forgot, which is that we've got to be better connected to each other and to the planet that makes our lives possible. And with that in mind, the starting point, as I mentioned in terms of this whole lead with we virtuous spiral is it's yourself, it's your own agency. So what are some conscious things you can do? Low hanging fruit. Be very intentional about what you buy. And I mean, don't buy stuff just because it's cheaper without having some sense of the cost, the true cost of that product. So you can buy a can of tuna for 
99 cents, or maybe you can buy one that's caught like line and pole and it doesn't kill a lot of other species or something that costs more. I'm not saying you should eat fish, but I'm just saying as if by way of an example. Secondly, you should make sure that where you work not only aligns with your values, but gives you opportunities to make a difference. And we first, my company, every month we ask the employees, where do they want to volunteer? A pet shelter, you know, soup kitchen, whatever else. And we just, you know, do that every month. But make sure you feel good about working there because it allows you to bring your whole and true self to the table. Thirdly, you've got something really powerful in your hand. And it doesn't matter whether you've got 100 bucks or 100 million bucks, the money you invest. <clears throat> what bank are you banking with? And where do they invest? Is it in you know, industries that don't serve our future? Where do you put your retirement funds? You know, are they being responsible? Look at that portfolio and ask whoever you invest with and say, hey, I want to know where my money's going. Is it enabling those companies that are doing good? Or is it helping companies that are creating the problem? So you know, what you buy, where you work, and where you invest. And then above and beyond that, you can be that catalyst for change. You can do more at home, like you can compost and other things like that, which people in the regenerative agriculture movement are really calling for people to do because it makes so much sense when you think about it. At the same time, you can look at being the catalyst inside your own company and say, hey, I've done a little bit of reading. I've done a bit of research. There are other ways that we could look at this. And I'd like to suggest that either A, we work with new suppliers that are more responsible, B, when we go to the next product innovation, let's make something that's going to be even better for people and better for the planet. C, let's talk to our competitors and see if in the industry we can have a bit of a think tank and level up our products. Or D, let's look at how we can partner with folks from other sectors who care about the same things to accelerate and scale our impact. So I think when we start to think about all the aspects of our lives and how each one even though we weren't conscious of it before, has an impact that we really weren't paying attention to before, we suddenly realize every choice can be a, a step in the right direction. I'll give you an example. I live in LA. Everyone knows you need a car in LA. LA's, you know, all the traffic you all know about. I haven't had a car in LA for three years. You know, you make choices. I'm not saying everyone doesn't need a car. I'm just saying that you can make intentional choices. Get an electric vehicle. I don't know how anyone in good conscience can buy you know, a combustion engine anymore. You're literally compromising your future. So, you know, a lot of a lot of low-hanging fruit there. Yeah. And of course, you know, what what is heartening is just the amount of smart innovations happening at the moment. I mean, and Andrew McAfee talks about, you know, doing more with less, right? Um, you know, a simple example would be, you know, to say that, you know, the iPhone, you know, has taken, you know, a bunch of other products off the table that back in the, you know, 1990s, you know, we would have had to have had to, you know, provide all the, you know, functionality of, of an iPhone. And of course, the iPhone is largely now made out of, you know, recycled parts as part of the circular economy, which is ensuring that, you know, we can have our product take, productivity cake and, and eat it at the same time. And we're seeing this sort of decoupling from, from natural resources, which I think is, is, is really heartening. You know, there's a local guy even here on, on the northern beaches in Avalon who's now, you know, playing with um, 
seaweed and including seaweed in 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 the feed that you know gets fed to to cattle so that they fart less and as a result you know less methane gets emitted which is you know any husbands out there that could do well with some seaweed yeah i know i know i know yeah we would fully endorse this i'm sure sure many of the wives and partners out there would 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 agree with that as well but i think we're just at this you know beautiful time in history now where there is this you know flourishing of human creativity which i believe is all about you know, doing more with less. It's actually tapping into the creativity that resides within constraints. I mean, you know, Shakespeare was, you know, super disciplined with his creativity. You know, the iambic pentameter, imagine talking in that, or, you know, the sonnets that were written were, or, you know, whether we think of, you know, here in Asia, for example, you know, haikus. I mean, it's all creativity within constraints. Pete Mondrian, you know, 90 degree angles only. Um, and I feel like the UN SDGs and, 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 and the constraints within the environment can actually, you know, sort of harness this human creativity. Do you, do you see other examples of, of people doing more with less in, in a really innovative way? Oh, absolutely. And I totally agree with you. I'll give you one example. You know, I was lucky enough to work on the Nike brand years ago. And you used to think, you know, a lot of Nike ads, you get a lot of money to make 30 seconds of film and you have these epic ads at the World Cup or whatever. And, you know, people really enjoy them. But then one day we got a brief and we got like a very small amount of money, a few thousand dollars to do a big launch. And we're all like, well, what are we going to do with that? But when you think about it, you're right. It's just a different creative brief with different constraints. And it allows you to think completely laterally. So when you think about doing you know, more with less, think about how expansive that can make your imagination in terms of how you solve for things. So a few examples. One is, you know, there's a company out here in the U.S. called Bolt Threads that is using mycelium, you know, mushrooms to actually make a leather alternative so that we can get leather out of, you know, car seats and the apparel industry. And so they're looking to nature and they're de- kind of de- decoding the DNA of these certain, you know, um, natural elements that have certain properties and finding better replacements than, for example, industrial farming and cattle, which then has its impact on, on the environment. Or, you know, they have um, another product where they decoded spider webs. And, you know, I, I, in a conversation with them on my podcast, I found out that the CEO was sharing with me that they actually, spiders each have six different types of webs inside them. And the ones that make those, the, the arches that go out have a certain tensile strength the little lines in between them have another, and they build, they're incredible engineers. And so they've decoded that genome and biofabricated an equivalent that has certain properties and it's completely biodegradable. Um, you know, even Stella McCartney, who as a function of these sort of partnerships with innovative companies like this, has developed the first fully biodegradable tennis dress. So you wear this piece of apparel and then it completely decomposes afterwards. And you even see just one more example. There's a company out of Canada called Next Innovations, which has developed K-cups, those little coffee pods that you put in your coffee thing each day. As I understand it, there are 60 billion of those used each year, billion with a B, 56 billion end up in landfill. 56 billion of those cups. And now there's one that's been developed, which is 100% biodegradable in around 40 days. So all of these innovations are allowing us to still do the things that we'd like to do and capture that marketplace opportunity from consumers and so on but do it far more responsibly. And to your point earlier on, you're not going to do that until you embrace the constraints. 
where you've got less money and you want to do more. You're never going to go out and develop that next solution. So my, my advice to everyone listening to this for your business, your bottom line, your balance sheet is to look at every one of these constraints as a marketplace opportunity. Look at the challenge with biodiversity, the climate crisis, plastic in the oceans as an opportunity for innovation because they're all marketplace needs that, that are waiting to be solved. And you're seeing these companies just explode that are really leading into that earlier. Yeah, amazing. Now, we're, we are into the final innings here, here Simon. Um, I'm curious if there's, you know, one old idea or, you know, an archaic myth that, you know, still plays out in the boardrooms and, and elsewhere in, in, in capitalist society today that you'd have a chance to debunk or, or kill once and for all. What would be that old uh, myth that you'd like people to, to forget about? You know, I touched on it briefly, but I think one of the big obstacles or hesitations of companies of all sizes in the boardroom is that they think that this is a burden on them, that they think this is something more that they've got to do and there's going to be, you know, a wholesale reimagining of what business is, who they are, and so on and so on. As I touched on before, it's not about doing something new. It's about remembering what we forgot. In that while social media, to some extent, is pulling us all apart right now, especially here in the States and so on, we have to start to agree on the reality of the world that we live in and start to solve for that by returning to our chemically hardwired fundamental human connection and innate empathy for each other so that we can work together and solve together for these issues and also our deep and codependent relationship with the natural world. All of it stems from that. If you, instead of trying to be extractive and degrade and degenerate the natural world to make stuff that out of plastic that lasts forever, but instead you go, I want to take resources in a way that's going to give back and that fully biodegrades and has that circular economy, as you said, and turns on regenerative practices. All you're doing is tapping into those foundational truths, which is that we, we're connected to each other as human beings and we're connected to our planet. And so, I would encourage everyone to go, wait a second, the world, the sky isn't falling in. The end isn't nigh. This is just the beginning of a reawakening of our connection to each other in the natural world. And to look at your business, however small, whether you've got one employee or 100,000, and just say, how could we look at our suppliers? And how could we look at how we treat our people? And how could we look at what products we make and take them to market? And how can we look at the contribution we make to our communities or society in a way that really celebrates our connection to each other and that takes care of the planet on which we depend? And when that is your point of departure, that is your mindset, everything changes. But if it's the old mindset and you just want to keep kind of business as usual going with these incremental ad hoc efforts, things won't change and they're only going to get worse. So don't be intimidated. This is the greatest opportunity for an entrepreneur or a CEO or the C-suite in the last century to reimagine your business in responsible ways to engage the market forces that will drive your growth on the strength of the positive impact that you're having. Yeah, I think that's a, an amazing, you know, call to arms, call to action. And um, certainly for us to tap into that, you know, 
collective uh, purpose. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, I know this is um, you know the, the the place of branding and 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 luxury goods again. But and some people might think that this is a bit naff. But you know, Patek Philippe always say you know you never really own a Patek Philippe. You merely look after it for for the next generation. And you know whether you whether you think that that's um, accurate or not, or uh, whether that makes you want to go out and buy a Patek Philippe. I, I tend to think of the, the planet in a, in, a, in, a, in a similar vein, right? You know, you never really, you know, own your piece of property or your, your piece of real estate, you know, or the, the natural environment that you, you have an influence over. You, you merely look after it for, for the next generation. And I think that's a, an important call to arms. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. And I think I, I, would, I should just say, I think it, you know, it also highlights just how important kids, uh, whether they're your own or whether they're the Greta Thunbergs of the world, have in terms of influencing, uh, you know, CEOs and, and leaders who can make these shifts happen. No, I agree. I, I, time and again, you hear stories over here where there was this big shift in a major corporation and it was their family getting in their ear or their teenage kid getting in their ear and saying, hey, this is my future. But I was also going to point to Seven Generations, the, the cleaning product company that, you know, f- from an Indian tribe sort of um, embrace this outlook where you've got to look at the next seven generations in terms of, of your responsibility. And here's how I think about it. I mean, you know, writing this book and, and doing the work that I've done for 10 years, I reflect on this a lot. And I used to think that the gift of life is given to each of us. Like we're born, thank you, mom, dad, that was awesome, here I am. And we were given the gift of life. I actually think the gift of life, what we've been given is something we're supposed to give to somebody else. Like we're given a gift of life, but it's not for us. It's for who we pass it on to. And I think if we start thinking about how we can build a business by being ever more responsible to the next generation, as you say, again, if that's your point of departure, your ideas will change, your management style will change, your culture will change, your products will change, your marketing will change, and your business will grow. So none of this conversation has anything to do with other than your bottom line and how well you're going to do. I just think too many companies are trapped in the past and they're looking at life through the wrong end of the telescope. They're looking at it in terms of themselves instead of looking at where the world is at and how they need to show up to actually thrive in that new reality. And I think um, this is such an opportunity for innovation that we co-create. And I suspect I'm an optimist by nature, but I also think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that as more and more people climb on board, more and more market forces will be unlocked. The rewards and the momentum behind it all will continue to increase. And we're going to look back in 10 or 20 years, Anders will be a little bit grayer by then and a little more weary. And we're going to go, how on earth could it have been any different? Mm. Like, how did we, what did we, who, like what? I think it'll be like that. Fantastic. So, ladies and gentlemen, make sure you go out and uh, pre-order Simon's next book, Lead With We. Um, be part of the movement. And um, I'm very glad to see that, you know, your parents have, you know, shared the life with you and, and you passing it on to, to your daughters and, and, and the next generation. It's been great having you here on, on the Second Renaissance, Simon. Thank you, Anders. And thank you to everyone in advance of what you're going to do. What we can do together is just unlimited and uh You know, I'm excited to see what the next few years are going to be like. So thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show in your podcatcher and I'd be super grateful if you leave a review. 
For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. Coming up next, we speak with my friend Andrew Winston from Eco Strategies about how courageous companies thrive by giving more than they take, why the climate goalposts have shifted, the ticking clock of climate change, why sustainability is now an innovation catalyst, and other major foresights from his latest book, Net Positive, co-authored with former CEO of Unilever, Paul Polman. We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.